Well, we've come together this evening to uh, discuss and ask questions concerning the terms of communion that have been adopted by the session. And the meeting will consist of essentially two parts. Uh, the first part would be a brief overview of the terms uh, which I will make, focusing uh, much of my remarks, I think, upon that part of the terms of communion that I think tends to be the most uh, uh, have the most questions asked concerning it, that is the uh, uh, issue of perpetual obligation uh, to the covenants. And so that will be the first part of the meeting. The second part of the meeting will be a time to ask questions and to discuss matters related to these terms of communion. Now, <clears throat> knowing that, uh, uh, that these are important uh, subjects and, and matters to all of us, that uh, we want to, again, as I prayed, conduct ourselves in an orderly manner. And so in order to facilitate, um, I believe, knowledge, good order, and Christian charity, we've established here certain guidelines for our meeting this evening. So let me just run through these guidelines for you very quickly. Hold questions that you may have until the question-answer period. In other words, as I go through uh, the first part of the meeting, write your questions down. We will get to them. If you have questions, just from what I discuss, you may have, I'm sure, many other questions that I may not even cover. But, but hold your questions until we get to the question-answer period. Uh, speak at all times with Christian charity to one another. Um, do not interrupt one who has the floor with a question or a comment. Do not ask a question or make a comment until you are recognized by the moderator. In other words, raise your hand, I'll recognize you, and then you have the floor. And uh, then at that point, uh, uh, you've got the floor until you finish saying what you would like to say. Uh, number five, direct your questions and comments through the moderator. Don't direct them directly to another person in the in the uh, room here, but direct them to me, and uh, I think that that really helps quite a bit in, in our discussion uh, and uh, in, a, in our debate. Ladies, if you have a question or a comment, uh, we ask that you direct them through your husbands or fathers. Um, and uh, we don't want to see women getting involved in public debate situation with men. Uh, so direct your questions uh, through uh, through your husbands or your or your fathers. Okay. So the procedure when we get to the question and answer period, there'd be something like this. This is the most I believe most fair way to to. To organize this, um, first of all, after the the, the uh, lecture time is over, I'll open it up for questions. <clears throat> and ideally, this is what I would hope to see: is that we'll give those, for example, first of all, who ha at this particular point have not been able to men mentally consent to or assent to these terms of communion, an opportunity to ask a question at that particular point. Then, we'll take the response over to the side of those who have been able to mentally 
consent or assent to these terms of communion. Then we'll take it back over to those who have not, give them an opportunity to respond. And it's not for the purpose of seeing who stands where, but for the purpose of being able to have, you know, an opportunity for everybody to be able to, uh, uh, to do so, so that uh, all of those who assent to the terms of communion don't control uh, the, the responses and the debate. So there is a, an interchange going back and forth. And so uh, that seems to be the most fair way to conduct that. After that has been thoroughly dealt with that question, then we'll throw the question back over to those who can mentally assent. If they have a question, they'd like to have those who cannot or have not uh, uh, assent uh, to, if they'd like to ask them a question to think about, to respond to, then they would have that opportunity. Then we'd go back and forth with the responses uh, that way. So, um, that will be the uh, format uh, that we will be following uh, this evening as far as uh, the question and answer period. Now, though I am moderating uh, this meeting, uh, I believe it's clear to all of you that, uh, that I do adopt these terms of communion, uh, that uh, I'm not uh, some, some way neutral on that particular issue. And so I want to make that clear. Um, but I'm going to try and moderate the meeting as fairly as I possibly can, uh, nevertheless. And uh, um, if I do have, this might be an unusual situation, if I do have some, at times some comments to make, I'll try and make them at that appropriate time when someone who does assent to the terms of communion uh, has, it's their time or their turn to respond, I'll try and interject something at that particular point in time, not take... Uh, uh, someone else's turn who does, uh, has not assented to these mentally yet. <clears throat> so since these are the rules for order in the meeting, uh, if I, in my own judgment, believe you have violated one of these rules, I'm just going to remind you that you're out of order. All right? I'm going to say, you know, you're out of order at that particular point. Don't take it personally. Don't be offended. I'm just reminding you that we have certain guidelines that we've established to try and have an orderly meeting. And so, uh, just to let you know at the, at the very outset, uh, I think that's a helpful way, again, uh, to, uh, uh, to conduct a meeting uh, of this nature. So, those are the guidelines um, that we will follow for our meeting this evening. <clears throat> Now I move into just uh, um, the lecture part, I suppose, of the uh, of the meeting, and I want to uh, just give you an overview of the terms of communion, um, and not going through necessarily every point, but uh, just a, a brief overview, answer some questions that that I have er already heard asked. Um, in order to uh, uh, just give a response at the uh, at the outset and uh, and then respond to uh, the issue of social covenanting, say a little bit about that. And so it won't be a long and depth drawn out type of uh, uh, lecture, but uh, rather brief, but just covering some of these points. First, first of all, the session has approved these as biblical terms of communion, and I would add myself and Elder Barrow voting in favor of the motion, Elder Domes abstaining, 
because he had not yet finished reading the Arkansas renovation. Uh, Elder Domes, I might add, did not dissent from the motion. He abstained from the motion, and uh, he is in the process of finishing uh, reading those documents and thinking through that material. So uh, that's that's where uh, the um, uh, as far as the uh, session and the decision that had uh, has been made. Uh, you understand where the session is at this point. Each family should have uh, received. Um, several documents. Uh, you should have received, um, let me just get this here, this, uh, an explanation in defense of terms of communion. You should have that in your possession. You should also have, uh, I'll just do this in chronological order, this overture that was sent to uh, the Presbytery uh, dated uh, uh, March 6th, 1996. If you don't have a copy of uh, any of these documents, we'll certainly see that you get them. And then you should also have received uh, a copy of this document, which is the, the letter to the Presbytery, going through uh, the rationale for uh, dis dissociation and explaining the terms of communion to, uh, to the Presbytery. So you should have received those already. <clears throat> in, in the uh, very near future, we will be seeing that everybody gets, uh, as well, uh, an act, declaration, and testimony, and then a copy of the Arkansas renovation. And so those will, those will be uh, the documents that we will uh, be handing out to each family. Um, now, regarding the covenants and these documents, just uh, our encouragement to the members of uh, of the or to the uh, each family and and uh, to the to the uh, uh, heads of households in particular, uh, as you instruct your family and as you talk about these issues, uh, we know that there's a lot at stake, and we realize that we didn't. Uh, as, as elders, we didn't uh, come to these conclusions because we wanted to make life hard for you or for us. Uh, we don't take any delight in, in the uh, difficulty and transition and uh, changes and that type of thing. It's, that's not at all uh, the case. Um, uh, just one illustration, the difficulty that, that each family may go through, multiply that by the number of families in the church, and you know the, the, the difficulty that each elder has to go through. Um, and then you have the families in Prince George as well. And so um, we, we assure you that we did not come to these uh, conclusions or decisions uh, with any uh, uh, frivolous uh, type of... Uh, attitude. Uh, we did not uh, approach them lightly. Uh, we realize these are very serious matters and we realize the possible consequences in our church. And uh, all, for all of those reasons, uh, we are uh, extremely concerned. But nevertheless, we, we believed that we had to, uh, that out of necessity, we must uh, take these particular steps. Uh, we would not have uh, uh, brought all of this upon ourselves for any other reason. Um, <clears throat> regarding the covenants, 
the National Covenant and the Solemn League and Covenant and uh, the documents which you have received and will receive, we encourage you very, very strongly not to draw conclusions without having read all of the documents. You can ask all of the questions that you want. You can debate the issues, but do not, we plead with you, do not draw conclusions until you've read all of the documents. That's only fair. That's only right uh, to take uh, a position uh, uh, where you read the documents that, that are involved so that you have an understanding of what kinds of questions to, to ask and to, what kinds of conclusions to draw. Um, we would encourage you, therefore, to reserve final judgment uh, concerning these terms of communion until you have read these documents and have asked all of the questions you want to ask and discuss the matters that you want to discuss. And we will make ourselves available on the phone, in person, in whatever form would be most helpful to, to do so. And so we encourage you uh, to, to do that. Proverbs 18.17 says, I just ask one question, might be out of order, but you say read all of these documents. Could you tell us all the documents you're referring to? Yeah, the ones I just the ones I just mentioned. Okay, this uh, Solemn National League or uh, National, National Covenant, Solemn League Covenant, and yeah. all those books. Yes. Uh, all of the documents that I just referred to are the are the documents that uh, that we uh, that we have uh, 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 mentioned, and you are out of order. <laughs> Yes, it, ask the question. We we still can get it on tape. Uh, you could you know you can ask that question later on. Uh, so um, the uh, um, yeah Proverbs eighteen seventeen says, "He that is first in his own cause seemeth just, but his neighbor cometh and searcheth him." And so the the word of God encourages us that we may uh, all of us. Um, uh, believe that you know that we have uh, an accurate understanding of the issues involved here, uh, but we need to allow uh, our neighbors. We need to allow that kind of interchange, and we've done an awful lot of that in our session. We've we've uh, debated these issues inside and out as as much as we know at this point, and uh, uh, looked at these very carefully. Uh, and um, we we encourage you to to take the same kind of approach with regard to these issues. The next point I'd like to just quickly mention is uh, regarding the level of knowledge and comprehension expected before one can become a communicant member. That I know is a is an issue that uh, has been uh, been asked uh, many times. And uh, uh, for the record, uh, we would just cite this for you to uh, uh, to uh, uh, have as far as a uh, an expectation. Uh, we do expect you to read the documents, and again, we expect that would be our confessional documents. Uh, that would include the. Uh, the Directory for Public Worship, the, the Form of Government, the, the Covenants, uh, and, and the, um, the uh, Arkansas Renovation, the Act Declaration Testimony. A lot of reading. We do expect you to read, have read the documents. 
it's hard to affirm the documents without having read them. Um, and uh, so we do uh, expect that. Um, secondly, we expect you to affirm that to the best of your knowledge, you believe these documents to be agreeable to the Word of God. We expect you would have, thirdly, a general knowledge of the distinctive doctrines and of uh, key events. Um, not all of the events that happened, but a general knowledge of the key events, several key events and, and things that happened in the course of, say, a historical testimony, just so that you have some understanding how to fit these things into a historical setting. We're not asking you to be experts on these particular issues. We're not expecting you to have a level of knowledge um, that, uh, uh, that uh, not that our level of knowledge is you know, ins uh, unsurpassable or anything like that, but we're not expecting you to have the level of knowledge uh, that an elder uh, would have or a church officer. Um, but... Uh, you know, to be able, just as we would ask you, interview you and ask you certain questions about what you believe um, uh, concerning your faith, um, and uh, your answer should uh, coincide with the confession of faith, though you won't necessarily quote word for word the confession of faith, uh, but you should be able to, to know certain things, uh, you know, uh, key distinctives. Um, uh, of of um, this particular of these documents, key positions should know. For example, I mean the terms of communion. Uh, someone asks you about covenanting. Is covenanting uh, according to the terms of communion? Is it uh, something that is perpetually uh, obligatory? And you know, if you say, "Well, gee, I don't know uh, about that," then uh, then at that point. You know, you're not ready to uh, to adopt these terms of communion. Uh, you have to uh, the distinct these distinctives uh, are made, I think, clear uh, in this uh, in these documents. There are not that many more distinctives. Uh, we've probably all talked about them already. Uh, the distinctives of this particular position. Many of you wives have probably heard them discussed either by your husbands or with other uh, uh, families uh, in the church. So uh, the distinctives um, uh, have, I think, been already noted. Um, and so it's a question of being able to basically identify, you know, that you understand uh, at least what the distinctive is and that you can say that you believe it's agreeable to the Word of God. Um, as I said, we do not expect you to master these documents. Uh, we do not expect you to have full understanding of these documents. That's not what we're requiring. Uh, what we would say is, do you believe the doctrine, worship, government, discipline, covenants, and historical testimony contained in these documents to be biblical? Or do you believe that any of these documents that I've just, or these uh, truths concerning doctrine, worship, government, discipline, covenants, historical testimony, do you believe them to be clearly unbiblical? 
If you fall on the clearly unbiblical side, then we would want to work with you and talk with you. Uh, that would be our desire to, you know, to try and, and explain further um, why we believe they're biblical. But if you believe they're clearly unbiblical, that will keep one from becoming a communicant member. But if someone says, <clears throat> um, to the best of my knowledge, I mean, I don't understand everything that's in there, uh, but to the best of my knowledge, uh, what I understand about those documents, I agree with. I, I think that they, they are biblical. Then that would in no wise in our judgment keep one from being admitted into communicant membership. <clears throat> Absolute certainty on every matter covered in these doc documents is not required. Absolute certainty on all. Every matter is not required. Uh, that would disqualify us from being a Christian because many of us wrestle with uncertainty at times with regard to our faith as, as, as well, don't we? A lack of assurance is not a qualification of being a Christian. So, we're saying that one comes to the conclusion that however, say they become a community member, and they come to the conclusion that something is clearly unbiblical in these terms of communion. Well, we would, again, try to dissuade them or persuade them that, that they are indeed biblical, but if they came to that conclusion, um, then, then they would uh, uh, put themselves outside of, of that communicant membership uh, status. Um, and so, uh, I mean, that wouldn't be you know, just like that, of course, but I mean, over a period of time and working with a person, um, it would be like, you know, we, we have the confession of faith. Somebody came and said, well, I believe that the confession of faith is clearly unbiblical in this particular area. We would do the same thing even with the old terms of communion that we had, our covenant membership. So, if you have further questions at the, in the question and answer period about that particular issue, feel free to uh, follow up. But uh, I think that that's uh, at this point sufficient. Uh, you know, um, without knowing what other kinds of questions you might have. Uh, the next thing is just a question that, uh, again, uh, that uh, I've heard. Uh, why have we adopted these terms of communion? <clears throat> Well, first of all, we believe each one to be agreeable to the light of God's Word. <clears throat> we believe that they are biblical, in other words. Uh, second of all, and that's most important, but second of all, we believe each one to be agreeable to the light of attained reformation. What do I mean by that? Well, reformation is not truly reformation if it is not biblical. Uh, if it's not biblical, it's deformation. It's not reformation. And so we believe that these particular terms of communion represent uh, the, uh, the apex, if you will, of uh, attained reformation uh, that, uh, uh, that we see in uh, history that, uh, since uh, uh, the, uh, the apostles, the time of the apostles, and um, uh, that is much like sanctification in a person's life. Just as the church 
just as an individual will grow, I think, in the grace and the knowledge over a period of time of Christ. So the church, I believe, um, uh, grows in a similar manner. And uh, until we finally reach that period in the millennium, uh, where there will be uh, the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, uh, that kind of vast uh, uh, um, publica- publication uh, of the truth, we, we I believe see this going on um, uh, with regard to the church as well. This this uh, sanctifying process within the church and and uh, understanding uh, and uh, applying God's truth. The longer a church, the church exists, there are more heresies that spring up. The church uh, uh, responds to those heresies, perhaps more clearly defines the truth in, in many areas, uh, using the Word of God uh, as its uh, infallible standard. And uh, so uh, what, what we're saying in, the, uh, in, in regard to this issue, we believe that uh, uh, these terms of com- communion do reflect the light that has been attained uh, by uh, the Reformation of the Church, and uh, and that's not to in any way uh, say that that uh, it is uh, our desire to follow men above the Word of God. It's simply to say we believe that that Reformation is only it, we can only call it Reformation because it's biblical. It's in, it's in conformity and agreeable to the Word of God. Just before I leave that uh, question, um, I might say that for any uh, of us, uh, uh, for any human being, any uh, a Christian, or for any church, therefore to turn back uh, and to turn their backs on either the light from God's Word or the light from biblical reformation is to become unfaithful. If as a Christian I turn my back on, on light that God gives to me, it doesn't mean I'm not a Christian anymore, but it means I'm being unfaithful. And that's uh, certainly true of a church as well. When a church turns their back on light that God has given, either through His Word directly or through His Word as it's been manifested in biblical reformation in history, to turn one's back on that is to be unfaithful in that particular area uh, to uh, what God has revealed. <clears throat> well, this probably leads us up to a um, uh, very important uh, question. Do we find these terms of communion in the Scripture? Are these... I've said that the, that, uh, the session believes these to be agreeable to the Word of God. Do we find them in the Scripture? Well, let me, let me ask uh, some questions uh, to get us thinking a little bit. Could a confessed dispensationalist or a confessed Arminian or a confessed prelate have been a communicant member in the Apostolic Church? To deny the continuity of the covenants from the Old Testament into the New Testament, that's, say, dispensationalism, to say those don't apply to me, God's law doesn't apply to me anymore, God's moral law, God has to repeat what he says that's binding upon me in the New Testament. Could a person like that be admitted 
uh, to the to the Lord's table? Could he be a communicant member? Uh, how about the person who uh, the Arminian who denies God's unconditional election of sinners? Could a person like that who denied it forthrightly, outrightly denied that truth, be admitted to the Lord's table? What about the uh, person who denied the rule of elders and ordination by elders, uh, but said, "No, it, it's a, it's a bishop, one man, who ordains and sets apart those uh, who are called to minister." Could he have been admitted to communicant membership if he denied rule by uh, elders, the Presbyterian form of government? Well, I I submit to you, no. They could not. They would not have been admitted to the Lord's table had they denied those truths. Um, But I ask you, where will you find those specifically mentioned as terms of communion in the Scripture? Where will you go to find a list of those particular things? My point simply is this, that if, if a doctrine is clearly biblical and yet it is steadfastly denied by one who desires to become a communicant member, he is excluded from communicant membership until he can affirm that he believes it to be agreeable to the Word of God. Even though he may not fully understand the doctrine or be able to explain all of its implications, that's not the same thing as forthrightly denying those doctrines. Again, that was not uh, a term of communion. We will grow in our understanding of things, but we can't say that's not true and come to the Lord's table if it is a biblical truth clearly revealed in the Scriptures. In the same way, we believe that uh, as elders that each of these terms of communion are biblical. We believe they're clearly taught in the Word of God and therefore do rightly form uh, our terms of communion. Now, it's true. If someone wanted to multiply the list of requirements, I mean, to list all of the biblical truths that one could possibly find in the Word of God, uh, you know, how long that would be. Uh, It would be exceedingly long. But what we have summarized here for us, I think, does cover uh, all of the bases that we believe uh, are are, uh, uh, taught in in the Scriptures. For example, where do you find in the Scripture that we are required to own the moral equity of the National Covenant of Scotland or the Solemn League and Covenant as a term of communion? Or is that taught in the Scripture? Well, let me just take you through some passages. I assume, again, uh, that you have looked at some of the passages. You've um, hopefully had time, maybe you haven't, uh, to read through um, uh, the overture, which uh, gives um, the duty of social covenanting as well as the perpetual obligation of covenanting. But, but let me just read a few passages with regard to social covenanting uh, in God's Word. 
Uh, Deuteronomy 29, verses 10 through 15. Israel covenants with the Lord in this passage. Moses says to Israel, Ye stand this day, all of you, before the Lord your God, your captains of your tribes, your elders, and your officers with all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and thy stranger that is in thy camp, from the hewer of thy wood unto the drawer of thy water, that thou shouldest enter into covenant with the Lord thy God, and into his oath, which the Lord thy God maketh with thee this day, that he may establish thee today for a people unto himself, and that he may be unto thee a God, as he hath said unto thee, and as he hath sworn unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Neither with you only do I make this covenant and this oath, but with him that standeth here with us this day before the Lord our God, and also with him that is not here with us this day. God entered into a covenant with his people there, and even with those who would follow, who were not even present uh, with that group of people. Second uh, Kings chapter 11, verse 17 this is a covenant which after Athaliah, the wicked queen, was slain, the high priest Jehoiada, verse 17, made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people that they should be the Lord's people between the king also and the people. In 2 Kings 23.3 This is the covenant that Josiah made with God the people made with God. Verse 3 says, And the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all their heart and all their soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book and all the people stood to the covenant. That is, all the people took the covenant. Second Chronicles 29. I'm not going through just simply rehearsing that list that you find there just to have pulled out uh, uh, just a few of them. Second Chronicles 29.10 This is the covenant that Hezekiah made. <clears throat> now it is in mine heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. And then go to chapter 30, verse 8. For Josiah says, Now be ye not stiff-necked as your fathers were 
but yield yourselves unto the Lord, and enter into his sanctuary, which he hath sanctified forever, and serve the Lord your God, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. Um, this language of yielding yourself to God is covenant language. That's what uh, Josiah or Hezekiah in chapter 29 said that he was going to enter into covenant with God uh, and the people with God. And the language that's used of entering into this covenant is of yielding yourselves unto the Lord. One more Old Testament passage would be uh, just a prophecy that uh, covenanting is not, uh, and there are several prophecies to this effect, but in Jeremiah chapter 50, that that, uh, covenanting is not uh, spoken of as simply something to be done uh, uh, under the Old Covenant, but is spoken of something that they are to look forward to doing under the New Covenant as well. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 50, verses 4 and 5 says, In those days and in that time, saith the Lord, the children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah together, going and weeping. They shall go and seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion, with their faces thitherward, saying, Come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. As we go into the New Testament, just uh, uh, two passages very quickly. Galatians 3.15 Galatians 3.15 says this with regard to uh, covenanting, social covenanting. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, Yet, if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. That's the basis upon which we know the continuity of the covenant that was made with Abraham to all of Abraham's descendants, not those particularly of faith, to us. That's the argument that Paul is using in Galatians chapter 3. The covenants continue to bind those who are of the faith uh, with those who made the covenant. Not simply the physical seed. That's the way he's arguing here. Uh, the spiritual seed. Um, and then First Timothy six twelve. This is a, uh, I believe, a reference to covenanting, public covenanting, where Paul says, "Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life." whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Now, the question I would ask is simply this. Is social covenanting biblical? And I would answer, yes, I believe it is biblical. Does the moral content of all biblical covenants bind us? Absolutely. All the moral precepts and and, uh, all of that within a covenant which is agreeable to the Word of God binds those 
people who made the covenant, uh, who were there present, uh, who made the covenant. But because it's biblical, because it's faithful to the scripture, it binds all believers, all Christians, if it's biblical. What about the covenant God made with Israel at Mount Sinai? Uh, Does the moral content of that historical covenant bind us? Absolutely. Uh, We believe we're bound by the Ten Commandments. Uh, That was part of that covenant which God established with his people. And all of the moral precepts, all of the moral um, uh, the, uh, the, the moral law that comes from that covenant does bind us as his people. So then we ask, um, moving from that point, does the moral and biblical content of any historical covenant bind us? And again, uh, the session believes uh, in taking these terms of communion, we believe that that the moral content of all historical covenants bind us, if it's biblical, if it's scriptural. Um, We cannot swear, uh, I think this is an important distinction to make here, we cannot swear either the National Covenant or the Solemn League and Covenant as the original covenanters did because the particular circumstances of the covenant were unique to their situation. Scotland, England, Ireland, the historical situations that were there, those particulars, those particular circumstances were not there. Um, We're in a different nation. So the particulars of that we cannot own for ourselves. We're not saying that. That's not not, uh, what's being uh, put forward. What's being put forward is that we must own the moral equity of those covenants. See, we cannot really swear them until we have the same situation which they had at that particular time, where we have a Christian magistrate, where we have all of those things. We can't really swear that covenant as they did. But we can own the moral equity of those covenants as being biblical. And that's what this term of communion, if you look carefully at the term of communion um, there, I think that that's, that's what it says. Um, this is the um, fourth term of communion. It says that public social covenanting is an ordinance of God obligatory on churches and nations under the New Testament. That the National Covenant and the Solemn League are an exemplification of the divine institution and that these deeds are of continued obligation upon the moral person and in consistency with this, that the renovation of these covenants at Arkansas, Scotland, 1712, was agreeable to the word of God. So, again, realize that what is being said, you are not going to be swearing that covenant in the same way that these people did, but you will be owning, if you adopt these terms of communion, you'll be owning that these are biblical. What is said there is true. It's in agreement with the, with the scriptures what a Christian magistrate should do when we have a Christian magistrate. What the church should do. What each individual citizen within a nation, what their responsibility should be uh, in that kind of a covenanted reformation. 
And so we can begin working at the level which we are right now, you know, uh, in our families, in our church. We can speak the truth. But obviously, there's certain things we cannot uh, do with regard to the civil magistrate and things like this because we're not in that kind of a... Uh, the particulars of that situation are not the same for us. Um, <clears throat> However, we can uh, we can own these covenants as being biblical, just at, uh, for the same reasons that the church in every age, since the apostles, has used a creed which faithfully summarizes the word of God as a term of communion. All the Orthodox churches, I mean, they began with the Apostles' Creed, which was very brief. Uh, then you have the Nicene Creed, which expands that. Then the Creed of Chalcedon expands that. Because as new heresies arise, to be able to identify which side of this issue do you stand? Are you orthodox? Are you not orthodox? Are you faithful or are you not faithful with regard to the truth of God's word? And so this is what the covenants have done. Uh, along, it becomes basically another um, uh, doctrinal standard that we say these things are biblical that are talk that are spoken of in in this. You find uh, to some degree, I mean, you you find in this chapter in the Confession of Faith what the responsibility of a civil magistrate is, but uh, this lays it out beautifully. The covenants do. <coughs> As long as the covenants are agreeable to the Word of God, they may be used. They may be used as a term of communion, and it's biblical to to own them as such. Concerning uh, under that question, concerning oaths, our confession says this in uh, chapter twenty-two, section two. It says, yet as matters of weight and moment, an oath is warranted by the word of God under the New Testament, as well as under the Old. So a lawful oath, and a lawful oath is a biblical oath, that you're swearing to something that's biblical. So a lawful oath being opposed, being imposed by lawful authority in such matters ought to be taken. It ought to be taken if it's biblical. Still, and looking at the question of are these covenants uh, biblical, uh, just move on to another um, another um, uh, argument I, I would offer, give to you to think about. <clears throat> To deny, and I'm, I am drawing uh, very near to the end of uh, the discussion here on my part, and be opening it to questions in just a moment. To deny that the moral equity of lawful covenants is perpetually binding is to completely undermine continu uh, covenantal continuity of God's moral law from one age to another. Think about this for a moment. To deny the binding obligation to own covenants that are biblical is to undermine covenantal continuity of God's moral law from one age to another. It is 
the covenantal, that particular view to undermine it is the covenantal discontinuity of dispensationalism. Is not our, our covenantal hermeneutic that if God reveals a truth in the Old Testament that is biblical, that he must annul it, that he must modify it in the New Testament, otherwise it continues to be binding upon us? That's been the way that I have operated under uh, uh, covenantal continuity. Now, unless one would claim that uh, covenanting, social covenanting, is part of the ceremonial law, uh, the sacrifices, the priesthood, the temple, that type of thing, uh, or would say that it's uh, a part of the Judicial law, like uh, the separation laws that separated uh, the foods uh, between clean and unclean, or the uh, not using uh, different types of animals, the, the, the donkey and the ox, to, to plow together, just sow different kinds of seed in, in the same field, um, that type of thing. If, if one uh, sees social covenanting falling under one of those categories, then, in fact, it has. But if it doesn't fall under those categories, then it is moral and therefore perpetual, like all of the moral commandments of God and obligations of God from the Old Testament. And so, if it is indeed moral, a part of God's moral law, it is perpetually binding upon God's people when the occasion calls for it. One other, one last thing I would just say by way of um, the last thing I want to say with regard to the covenants. Furthermore, as we consider uh, the heresy of pluralism, how can pluralism at the civil or ecclesiastical level be rooted out without a national covenant that binds both the civil government and its citizens as well as the church and its members to a common religion and creed by covenant. How will you root out pluralism? How will you keep from falling into that trap of pluralism if you do not have a social covenant? Right? I, this, uh, the, the, the issue is either that or the magistrate pulls out the gun and comes house to house and says, you will believe this or you're gone. It's either, it's either a, a social covenant between God and, his, and the people of that nation and the church, or the civil magistrate uh, imposes from the top down and says, this is what we will believe, and if you don't believe this, this is what you can expect without any covenant. To, to not have pluralism at the civil level or at the ecclesiastical level. Um, without affirming the necessity of a national covenant, the sins of idolatry, doctrinal pluralism, and heresy must necessarily be tolerated, supported, and defended by the civil magistrate, which is contrary to the first commandment. And our confession of faith, which says that the civil magistrate is bound by duty to suppress heresy. Without a social covenant, he cannot do it. Without a national covenant, he cannot do it. That's section 23.3 in your confession of faith. In uh, 
Hetherington's, just a, a very brief quote. Um, <clears throat> before the uh, Solemn League and Covenant was adopted, uh, it was in 1643, uh, in 1641, there was a precursor to that document from the the Scottish uh, Church, and um, and they, it, it's entitled "Our Desires Concerning Unity and Religion and Uniformity of Church Government as a Special Mean to Conserve Peace in His Majesty's Dominions." Mouthful, but that's uh, that's what it's, this is called. But let me just read to you this brief paragraph with regard to the issue of pluralism. Uh, this is a quote from their document, 1641, written by Alexander Henderson. We do all now, uh, I'm sorry, we do all know and profess that religion is not only the mean to serve God and to save our own souls, but that it is also the base and foundation of kingdoms and estates and the strongest band to tie subjects and their prince in true loyalty and to knit their hearts one to another in true unity. Nothing so powerful to divide the hearts of people as division in religion. Nothing so strong to unite them as unity in religion. And the greater zeal in different religions, the greater division. But the more zeal in one religion, the more firm union. In the paradise of nature, the diversity of flowers and herbs is pleasant and useful. But in the paradise of the church, different and contrary religions are unpleasant and hurtful. It is therefore to be wished that there were one confession of faith, one form of catechism, one directory for all the parts of the public worship of God and for prayer, preaching, administration of sacraments, etc., and one form of church government in all the churches of His Majesty's dominions. Well said. You cannot have, you cannot have um, true unity. You cannot avoid pluralism without a national covenant. Is that not? I mean, as a postmillennialist, is that not what we are striving for? Is that not the millennium? Is that not what God has said will occur yet upon the earth? I submit to you that it indeed is. That the millennium isn't going to be a hundred or a thousand different Christian denominations with everyone believing their own thing. It is going to be a uniformity in worship and doctrine and government and discipline, being like-minded on these particular issues, as was the goal of this particular covenant of reformation in Ireland, England, and Scotland, and which all the other Reformed churches had been invited to join with them as well. And Holland was ready to do so. The Church of Holland, the Reformed Church of Holland, and the other churches had received the same literature, uh, the same Solemn League and Covenant. And so the goal was this covenanted reformation. <clears throat> and so the National Covenant and the Solemn League and Covenant, therefore, we believe to be necessary uh, if we do believe in postmillennialism.
because they are what, that is exactly what will occur. That's the only way we can prevent, that God has given to us to prevent, unless he just supernaturally imposes uh, that upon people, but we see him working uh, usually through the means that he's established in his word, and that would be covenanting. They are necessary, we believe, therefore, as a term of communion, because they are biblical. So, that's the... Uh, that's the. Uh, uh, I could talk further about some of the other terms of communion, and you can raise any issues that you would like to concerning those. But uh, what we'll do at this point is shift gears, and I will begin moderating um, this uh, uh, this meeting. And uh, uh, so I will open it up first of all to for for a question from uh, one who. Uh, would uh, you know in earnest say I've not yet adopted uh, uh, mentally uh, these terms of communion? You have a question that you'd like to direct. Anyone? Yeah. Brian. Okay, like uh, you have these terms of communion. Actually, uh, these ones in this book are different than the ones that you had on the piece of paper. Mm-hmm. Right. So, like, where do the ones on the piece of paper come from? Um, they come from the back of the uh, Act, Declaration, and Testimony. They're in the very back here. These are just expanded just a little bit. Those, they're the same in substance. Uh-huh. Yeah, these are just expanded a little bit, though. So these, like who wrote these, ones, who wrote uh, these were uh, written by the uh, Reformed Presbyterian Church, and I believe those uh, the Reformed Presby- Presbytery. I'm not sure if that's uh, two different bodies or not. Do you know, Greg or Reg? Actually, my question is, uh, uh, you stated that you know um, that the terms of communion would not necessarily be a full understanding of all of these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, where does that come from? Is that a decision of your session alone, or is that the decision? Is that the way they are? But the people who initially uh, initially uh, derived these terms of communion. Mm-hmm. Um, my problem is, you know, like, how can you acknowledge something like the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms larger and shorter to be found upon and agreeable to the Word of God and these other documents? How can you agree if you don't understand them? I mean, that's kind of a big and a poke. It's like, uh, if, I, if you give me some book, you say, does this agree with the Word of God? I read the first page say, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, right. And what about the other 400 pages? Well, right. I know and understand so far is agreeable, so mm-hmm. I can swear this is agreeable. Mm-hmm. You know, what? who's drawing these parameters? It seems a little bit, uh, you know... Arbitrary? That's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a good question, and uh, uh, I'll, I'll let uh, someone from the from uh, the side who, who has assented to these uh, documents to respond. Go ahead, Doug. Great. Um, first of all, we have our elders, even under the other terms of communion, our elders were required to take that level of acceptance of our Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, would anyone assert that the elders have a perfect understanding of those documents? Um, if you know the elders well enough, you'll know that's absolutely not true. But we don't have a perfect understanding of the Westminster Confession of Faith. We have an imperfect understanding. And so, we continue to grow in our understanding of that Confession of Faith. 
but we've never had the requirement of a perfect understanding. And so uh, we are requiring uh, not a perfect understanding of the people either. It's a matter of, if having read the document, you do not disagree with it, we will allow you to grow up in that doctrine as you grow up in the faith, as is normal sanctification. That's, that's the only way it could possibly be. It, it applies to elders as well. We, we certainly are growing up in that faith. Uh, as time goes on, I understand those sections a little bit better every week, every time I study them, every time I teach them to my children. And I could give a better explanation to them day by day. And so it certainly is a matter of degree. The important issue here is whether somebody explicitly denies one of the points. So if, if after having read the document, do you explicitly deny one of the points is the question. Not do you perfectly understand every point, but do you explicitly deny Now, that I don't think is arbitrary. I think that's objective. Somebody can say either... I don't disagree with any of the points. I don't understand them perfectly. But if somebody says, I explicitly deny, that's an objective thing where you can put your finger on and say, okay, there's a point. Okay, so that's as, that's as objective as we can get while retaining the understanding that we're not sinlessly perfect, right? We're human and we don't want to declare that we have a perfect understanding of these documents any more than we declare we have a perfect understanding of the Scriptures. Um, I would uh, like to quote from the Westminster Confession and the National Covenant itself, and mm -hmm. by doing so assert that the position the session is holding forth, I don't believe, is the one they were holding forth in terms of what was meant by full subscription. Mm -hmm. Taking a note. The first quote is from the Westminster Confession, uh, chapter 22, section 3. <coughs> which is uh, of lawful oaths and vows. <clears throat> and in it, they say, Whosoever taketh an oath ought duly to consider the weightiness of so solemn an act, and therein to avoid nothing but what he is fully persuaded is the truth. And I believe they attach the word fully there for good reason. The uh, next quote, which is a short one, is the very beginning of the National Covenant with the Confession of Faith. And it says, We all and every one of us under written protest that after long and due examination of our own consciences in matter of true and false religion, we are now thoroughly resolved in the truth by the word and spirit of God, and therefore believe with our hearts, confess with our mouths, and subscribe with our hands, and constantly affirm before God and the whole world that this is the only true Christian faith and religion pleasing God and bringing salvation to men. And they go on to include those things which we're swearing to. Mm -hmm. So it definitely does not seem to me that what you're saying uh, was intended by full subscription is what they intended by it. Mm -hmm. And nor do I think that uh, your understanding would be the appropriate one. Okay. Um, Greg? That again, um, to to take um, to take his interpretation of fully persuaded would have to be an interpretation of perfectly persuaded, meaning perfect understanding, and that you could take no oath until you had a perfect understanding of the point. Now, who is the judge of who has perfect understanding of the point? If that's what he's saying they intended, then nobody could ever take an oath 
at any time until they believe they had perfect knowledge. So I think he's wholly mistaken as to his interpretation of the confession. They couldn't possibly have meant that unless they intended to have sinless perfection and understanding. And they know that's unbiblical, and so they couldn't have meant that. <coughs> Anyone else on, on the other side first, Reg? Mark? In chapter, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 20, mm-hmm. it says, God alone is the Lord of the conscience, mm-hmm. and that's free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word, or besides it. Is it not, uh, um, by making these terms of communion necessary, putting something beside the word of, uh, of God, and therefore running our conscience? Okay, uh, Reg? I actually use that section of the confession to prove the point that you have to do that because the divines that wrote that very section did that very thing. They actually said these things are in accordance with Scripture unless they thought they were contradicting their own writing because they made everybody subscribe. I didn't make them, but they said this was your duty to subscribe not only fully to the confession but to the covenants unless they thought they were contradicting their own writing. Mm-hmm. by binding people's conscience outside. When they say outside of the Word of God, they mean not just barely what the Scripture says, but also what it means, even if it's restated in other words. Mm-hmm. And so I take that to be, and I have used it even on the Internet as a proof uh, of this position, that they couldn't have written that and and have people subscribe to these covenants at the same time unless they thought they were fully biblical and therefore necessary. Mm-hmm. Mark? <coughs> Uh, yeah, I don't think that was answered. Um, uh, Red was uh, using the word outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like t- to see how you interpret the uh, the words in the confession here when they they con- contrast uh, contrary to the word or beside it. Mm-hmm. Uh, beside it. Okay, the the idea there beside uh, the beside it. Maybe I could. Go ahead and take a stab at it more. Uh, beside it would mean that uh, you impose some a mere human that, uh, authority, I believe, that doesn't have any biblical... Um, it's not contrary to the word, but, but you, you uh, uh, have no biblical authority for it uh, and assert that that is equal in authority uh, simply because it's a, a word of man though it's not contradictory to the scripture uh, directly of any commandment or anything like that, uh, uh, but it is in equal authority to uh, the scripture. And I think that's what would be, because it was uh, in, historically uh, the, um, uh, the uh, various uh, things that the Roman Catholic Church, the, Pope, uh, the, the Popish ceremonies that were being imposed and the various... Um, uh, by the uh, uh, prelates and the... Um, a common book of prayer and things like this were um, they were saying this isn't contrary to the word of God show us where the word of God does not uh, uh, forbid this or where it does forbid this um, uh, rather it was beside the word of God so that I think is what they were getting at in that particular uh, point and you wouldn't say that these terms of communion are not beside the word of God I, I would say uh, they're in agreement with the word of God not beside the word of God because I can find them, each one uh, 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 taught in the scripture. Um, the um, 
covenanting, you know, we try to just in a few minutes try to establish that that's biblical. And I think we can do so with each of the uh, the other documents as well. We were, you know, wanted to take the time to do so. So I would say they're in agreement with the Word of God. They certainly must have believed so, otherwise they would, you know, if that's the case, they wouldn't have written these documents and had people subscribe to them. Uh, let's see, I think we're ready. Let's see, that's right. I just responded. So go ahead, Dave. Uh, I would like to clarify what, for example, would be uh, grounds for excommunication um, or for not allowing someone to become part of uh, the church. By that I mean, suppose um, I were not persuaded that the Pope was the man of sin. Mm-hmm. Perhaps I identified him as being narrow. Or uh, I didn't believe that uh, at death my soul would immediately go to God, but it would be reserved until the resurrection. Or maybe my views on the Sabbath would be, I'd, some people think it's from midnight to midnight, maybe dust to dust, dawn to dawn. Uh, would any of those be uh, grounds for uh, not allowing me to be a member of the church? Okay. I'm going to just, uh, if you could adjust the camera, I'm going to take, if I could take that uh, chair from you there, Brian. <laughs> yes. But, yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, someone would like to uh, respond to uh, to that question. Yeah, go ahead, Greg. We would, in each case, take those questions, uh, debate them with the people who had dissent uh, on those questions. The Bible only teaches one thing on those questions, and that's what we have to come to together. It wouldn't be something that we would take lightly. It would be something that we would take as much time as is necessary. If at the end of the matter, we simply cannot agree, then that's just a statement of fact. We tried our best to agree, but we couldn't. But that means we don't believe the same thing. Uh, Brian? Okay, um, if in every point I agreed with you guys, mm-hmm. except for, like, let's say, the state of man at death, you know, where he is at death, um, then I would be excommunicated, right? Which would be, in, I, I understand that to be, like, by your authority in Christ, excommunicated from Christ. So would you believe then in that point of doctrine because I failed to believe that I immediately departed and went to heaven that I'd go to hell? This, this uh, probably just to talk a little bit about uh, the, the, uh, what uh, the Reformers taught with regard to excommunication might be helpful at this point, I think. Uh, um, and uh, if, you, you know, if you'd like to, to express... Okay. Well, I think that I'll, I'll just uh, try and explain that. No, I don't believe that excommunication... Uh, uh, automatically in any way uh, sends someone to hell. Uh, it is a remedial uh, uh, censure uh, for the purpose of restoring one back into fellowship and communion, uh, but it, it is not uh, a declaration at all that someone is reprobate, uh, that someone is uh, uh, bound for hell. Uh, nothing that I find in the scripture uh, would indicate that unless it is what the scripture calls uh, the unpardonable sin or the sin um, unto death 
but uh, um, normal excommunication uh, does not carry that kind of uh, a sentence uh, in it at all. So one, in, in fact, uh, as, I, as I read Rutherford, Rutherford says uh, that one who is uh, excommunicated um, uh, is still uh, treated as a brother uh, in some sense. Uh, he still is not, uh, he's not uh, treated as uh, one who has nothing at all to do with the church. He, you know, the, there is not only the, that particular church, there is also the church universal. Um, you know, uh, we don't have the authority as mere human beings to put people into hell. Uh, that's only something God can do. And we don't have that kind of judgment, omniscience, to be able to, to make those kinds of decisions. So we, we in no wise make that kind of a declaration. Dave? Nevertheless, though we could find ourselves agreeing with you on 10,000 points, yet we find ourselves disagreeing on one and out of conscience remain recalcitrant, we would be barred from the Lord's Supper and from the blessings of it as a result of that, correct? I think that, yeah, the, uh, uh, the same thing would have been, uh, uh, again, held by uh, the, uh, the reformers who uh, said that there is one true Christian religion, you know, I mean, these types of things that, uh, that they uh, presented. I think uh, particularly I would, I would emphasize um, if this is something that is found in the confession of faith, if, if that's what you're talking about, say the, the Pope is Antichrist or something like that, um, that makes it much more easy. But if, you, if you're saying it's something uh, that, uh, that is not that clear uh, in, in the Word of God, you can't find, for example, uh, I mean, clear to us, not saying that it's not clear, you know, but due to our human understanding at this point, we have not uh, ascertained there's not uniformity amongst uh, amongst the uh, uh, the forefathers, that kind of thing. I think it would be very slow uh, to take that kind of a position uh, at, at the same time. You know, not to, uh, if you find even amongst uh, amongst the uh, um, uh, the reformed uh, forefathers, you know, uh, discussion or division over that. Now, if it is clearly agreed uh, by the by the by uh, the uh, uh, consensus of of our reformed forefathers concerning a particular truth, and we say no, I'm walking contrary to that particular truth. Um, that makes it, I think, certainly uh, a much more obvious uh, of, a, of a violation. Go ahead, Dave. Um, so it just seems to me, and perhaps I'm wrong, but it seems to me that there are no minor points of doctrine contained in these documents, and and that if we stood apart from you at any one of them, that would be sufficient to be uh, excommunicated. And one of the doctrines, for example, uh, has to do with the, whether the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father alone or from the Father and the Son, the Philicu controversy. And uh, the church visible is roughly divided down the middle and has been throughout history on that point. All of the Eastern churches... Uh, deny that he proceeds forth from mm -hmm. the Son as well. Right. And uh, nevertheless, if I were to choose that position, even though I could uh, number hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of forefathers who asserted it, I would be excommunicate, correct? Well, they were separated. The church was separated over that particular yes, issue. In other words, in other words, the 
they saw that as being very significant that they actually did uh, uh, excommunicate over that. So it wouldn't be something, it wouldn't be something new or novel. And I, I believe uh, that the same thing would be true of the reformers. They would have said, you know, someone who holds that position as part of the Greek Orthodox Church is, is not able to come to our table. That's right. I believe they would have uh, uh, affirmed that. Right, and there are no minor points in the confession. Departing at any one of them. I think they call this, they call these the fundamentals of Christianity. Rutherford refers to the confession of faith as the fundamentals. Um, yes, Mark. Um, we we can see in, in church history all kinds of divisions and splits and schisms uh, and and departures. Mm-hmm. But uh, the foundation of the church is built on the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. I'm wondering, in the face of uh, the Judaizers and uh, um, all the little heresies that came up in the Corinthians church, we don't see uh, divisions like that. Uh, we see Paul and Barnabas uh, going to uh, Jerusalem like good Presbyterians to plead their case on this. Um, so I'm wondering why you're pleading this case with us and not with the presbytery that you covenanted with. to respond? Go ahead, Greg. The whole state of the question in regards to the terms of communion is the Presbytery that we covenanted with has no terms of communion. Every separate individual body is exactly that in our Presbytery. Our Presbytery was so misformed or deformed or whatever we, we want to put it, it didn't even get to the stage of taking actual vows for each minister. There's people leaving this so-called presbytery and they can't even discipline anybody because there were no actual vows taken. This was, uh, meetings were held, they were trying to form things, but there wasn't a sufficient understanding amongst the presbyters of how to properly constitute a church to actually put a constitute presbytery together. Consequently, we have come to an understanding of what it means to constitute a church, and that's to actually have specific vows and specific terms of communion. We're most certainly humbly pleading with them to talk with us. I just finished a three-hour conversation last night with Bruce Robinson, the moderator of Presbytery. Um, They have invited us to the June 21st meeting to explain uh, why we're doing what we're doing further. We have every intention of explaining to them what's going on. So we by no means have stopped talking to them. But yet the state of the question is we can't recognize them as a presbytery because it would be to deny the very position that we're putting forth. We say you haven't constituted as a presbytery, therefore we cannot recognize you as a presbytery. But we do love you as brethren, and we want to become a presbytery with you again under formal terms that are orderly something that we can hold to a real standard. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. 
Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.